We're back with more Inside the Green Room. Yesterday's episode was like the Hall of Fame varsity episode. We got the JV squad up today because it's just me, no Danny, no Charles Barkley. Just me and Jackson Frank, contributor from Liberty Ballers. If you follow him on Twitter, if you don't follow him on Twitter, you should. Jackson Frank, his uh, actual Twitter name is Jack Frank underscore JFF. An absolutely great follow. If you want to know the X's and O's of basketball, or just get some good commentary as it pertains to the sport, not just the Sixers, but all around the NBA landscape. Jackson, appreciate you coming on. Yeah, happy to do so. Happy to be the uh, the JV crew to to Danny and Charles's is varsity crew. That's a, <laughs> that's a totally fine uh, fine group to follow up. I'm happy to do it. Oh yeah, for sure. I'll definitely warm up for them. No problem at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the one the one unique thing for for people who are tuning into this episode. Generally, when I when I do the show with Danny, we might have a guest every now and again that that will be critical of the Sixers. But in the, for the most part, because we're usually interviewing Sixers, we don't get to be too critical of them. This show, however, is a totally different vibe. We can be as critical as we want. I'm I try to be as critical, but you have to you got to know your crowd. You got to know the environment. We will talk about Game Two. We'll look ahead to Game Three. And we'll also just discuss everything that's going on so far throughout the entirety of this playoffs. And I only say that, too, because if you haven't listened to the Charles Barkley episode, one of the things that that stood out that at least caught some media attention on Wednesday was the clip where Charles Barkley unprovoked basically said that DeAndre Jordan is unplayable in the NBA. And it really put Danny in a unique situation because he's like, this is my podcast. But Charles Barkley's job is to be critical and say and speak his own truth. But Danny has to speak his own truth as well. It's a very unique circumstance. Uh, Danny obviously defended DeAndre Jordan and Jackson. Before we talk about how Danny and the shooters and the role players performed tonight, I actually thought that DeAndre's minutes or his performance tonight wasn't as at least it definitely wasn't as bad as it was in Game One, where it stole almost all the headlines. Which is crazy when you think about DeAndre Jordan standing in the NBA and how much attention he got after game one. Yeah, I thought I thought he was like, I mean, you know, compared to game game one, especially he was fine. And, the, and I think what was toughest about DeAndre is in game one, he was respect, like I think his worst stint was his final one, right? When Paul Reed picked up his fifth foul and then, uh, you know, Jordan comes in with about 11 or 10 minutes to go and the, the Heat immediately go on like an 11-1 run. And DeAndre was involved in a lot of those defensive breakdowns. Uh, and this, in this one, I thought he was fine. Played four fewer minutes. Uh, I think the Sixers pulled the plug a little bit earlier as well. So, um, yeah, you know, finished, finished three lobs. He obviously had some breakdowns in the pick and roll. Had one play that I remember especially where, you know, he was pretty, you know, he was pretty, I would guess, like inactive and drop against Bam Adebayo. Bam got an and one. Um, but still, I think he did he did a couple of good things. You know, I thought he rebounded better as well today. Um, you know, he had five rebounds in 13 minutes versus two and 17. Um, just seen a little better on the glass, but um you know it, you know it's it's just it's just tough like yeah I, I don't think he should be playing but you know but you're not you're not gonna get, like it's almost marginal improvements right like you're gonna play a, a Paul Millsap or a Charles Bassey like yeah I thought Paul Reed's first stint today was was tough but found some footing in the second half so um yeah I thought definitely he was better than game one but you know I think it's it's important to be to be more I think the way the way I've tried to always kind of angle it is to be more critical of Doc continuing to play him versus DeAndre himself because DeAndre can only do so much, right? Like eventually like you can't just keep criticizing a player. He's, he's limited. It'd be, it'd be like continuing to criticize Tobias Harris for not being an incredible passer or something like that. Right. Like we've, 
we know who he is at this point. He's a very good player. Obviously, they're a different caliber, but you know, you don't want to be too harsh on a guy who's just trying to do his job and continues to be put in tough situations by a coach who you know has an allegiance to him because of a past history. Yeah, for sure. And it's not like it's not as if DeAndre Jordan has been vocal in the media saying I deserve to start in front of Joel in replacement of Joel Embiid, or I could be a double double guy. He hasn't said anything that outlandish to that that realm. So I, I commend you for making that point as well. Um, so yes, DeAndre Jordan went ahead and took away all the headlines after game one. And then after game two now, uh, I think we have now shifted the focus to the shooting performance of the Philadelphia 76ers. And I could point out one in particular, Danny, who went one of nine tonight from three. Tyrese Maxey, who had a great game in game two, still shot one of four from three. One of five from James Harden. One of three from George Niang, who had a 0 for 7, I believe, in game seven. Overall from three, the team was 8 of 30. Game one, they were 6 of 34. Now, a lot of people will look at that stat, Jackson. They'll say, man, they are not. They, if they just hit some open shots, they'll, you know, they should have hit these open shots. That's what a lot of people will say. It's a miss or make league. Are you seeing anything differently with a caliber of looks that they're getting now versus versus when somebody like Joel Embiid is in the lineup? Yeah, I mean, I think especially in game one, it felt like a lot of their threes were kind of late in the clock, things like that. I thought fewer of them were that were the, that case in game two. Um, still, some of them were just kind of a last a last second play or maybe a the ball didn't quite get to the spot quick enough. Um, but really, I mean, you know, both the, the issue in game one was that you could say, yeah, the Sixers will shoot better in game two, and then, you know, they won't lose by 14 and be down by 21 point. But the Heat also shot poorly, and they were the ones that had the positive shooting regression, right? They went 14 of 29, 48%. And so, I mean, that's – I think, obviously, the Heat played better than the Sixers in, in game two, but that's kind of how it goes, right? If, if the Sixers are the one that have a game where they go 48% from three and they're, they're capable of it, they have shooters to do that, then maybe we're, we're going back into Philly 1-1, you know, with a chance of Joel to return and – and things look, you're pretty, you're pretty optimistic if you're part of the Sixers organization or a fan or whatever it is. But the Heat were the ones that were, you know, able to generate better looks from three. And I think their offense just played better. So um, it felt similar to game one, but I thought the I thought the offense was better than game one, especially in the second half. Like in game one and going back and looking through it, so much of the Sixers good stuff happened when the Heat would have full court press and then they would break it and they would have to be able to play in space, get stuff downhill. Whereas today, you know, it was Maxi doing was saying Harden had some nice drives, Tobias had some good stuff going on um so it, it felt a little more sustainable than it did in game one but you know still not to the point you need especially considering how much the, the defense struggled whether it was the glass you know just keeping guys out of lane you know that's the one i think that's the one place if you want to point to both paul reed and andrew jordan but they really kind of struggled to play anything more than really deep drop you know paul reed gave up a pull up through to tyler hero jimmy butler got a couple of really easy looks from mid-range with the under jordan playing there so um it was the defense that was a bigger issue because it's it's and you, you saw what the Sixers could do in transition, right? Like, I mean, you get Maxi out there and you get Tobias at times and they're flying up and down, but they just had to take the ball out of the basket so often and play against a set, a set heat defense. And that's where you kind of get some, some threes that you're like, okay, we'll live with a, a George three or Maxi through a hardened step back, you know, a Danny corner three, but we want that to be kind of something where we go in, you know, with Joel, we go inside out or we have, we go inside out with a James or a Tyrese driver, even a, a, a Tobias post up where it just felt like the ball, you know, spun around the perimeter so much. And it was like, well, you know, it's a good shooter takes it, but it's not a shot that's ideal for them. That was kind of the case again in game two, but not as much as in game one, I think. For sure. I think, uh, you know, as I was watching the game and, and I was looking at the shots and obviously I pay intently to obviously Danny's shots. I'm like, these are shots that he should hit, 
but they're not the typical shots that he, you know, that you would want him to get. The, the Miami defense was not in any position to be scrambling. It was almost like hardened into the paint, one shot, challenge it. There was no, it never felt like the heat were under pressure or felt any level of anxiety and challenging any of the shots they eventually did let open. They were always there to contest. They were never, it never felt like a guy was wide open or had the time to really feel like he could take this shot in a comfort zone. Am I reading that right? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, I th- yeah, I think, if, you know, at some point tomorrow or before Friday, I'll, you know, I'll go back and like look at some of those possessions, but I just off the surface, it, you know, on the surface, it, it didn't feel like the, the heat were ever kind of in scramble mode rotating. Whereas even on the Sixers, good possessions offensively, it was, it was a Danny rotation, then a max rotation, a hard deflection and Tobias, like it had, you had to have three, four good plays in a row where it was just like with Miami. Okay. You're going to involve bam. We're going to switch it. We're going to switch it. We're going to have PJ Tucker help. Max Drew's going to use his size well. And if the ball gets to, to the corner of the wing, yeah, we're going to contest it, but we're not going to, we're not, we're not suit like we're, we're not going to watch that back on film and be like, oh, what a terrible defensive possession. It's just, you know, you can only do so much. So yeah, I definitely agree with that, that it felt like their their good defensive possessions felt a lot less stressful than the Sixers good defensive possessions. Obviously there are more of them for Miami than there were Philadelphia. So, for, so for the most part, when it comes to shooting, uh, we, we kind of discussed that. I think obviously when Joel comes, Joel Embiid comes back, and obviously we'll talk about that. Maybe Miami he will be in more of a scramble mode, and it, we've watched way too many playoff games. We kind of know how the shooting thing goes. Maybe the role players shoot better at home than they do on the road, and maybe those players for the Heat, like Max Struser, Victor Oladipo, whoever it might be, maybe they'll shoot more poorly uh, when they come to Wells Fargo Center. There was one stretch though where it, it both of these games there there's been stretches of optimism and then something terrible happens or something really bad happens like man and now the uphill battle goes throughout the duration of the game i thought there was a stretch in the end of the first quarter ending that first quarter in that and in the second quarter spot there where tyler hero started to really just feel not only did he, he was just operating with an immense level of confidence. I think Furkan Korkmaz might've been out there at the time. There was definitely a stretch where it felt like the primary defender for Tyler Hero was Furkan Korkmaz. And I could understand Doc saying, Danny's not shooting well, George Nyang is not shooting well. Let's put Furkan out there. But Furkan being out there on top of the fact that Shake Milton didn't get any playing time today was a weird rotation decision from doc what did you think of his decision there one as it pertains to tyler hero and his decision with the defensive playmaking and not having shake out there who i i personally believe has the skill set to play in this series yeah i mean i think i think with shake it's it's i think it's i'm sure it's frustrating for him and it's it's confusing probably people who follow the team because there there is the outline you know the year that think, you know, the year of the bubble, right, where he, you know, kind of solidified himself as a rotation guy, and you saw what he could do as kind of both on and off ball player, but he just hasn't, you know, for a multitude of reasons, you know, adjusting to a different role. Last year, then he dealt with a sprained ankle, a pretty tough back injury at one point this year. Like, he just hasn't had a lot of consistent time to acclimate himself. So um, I think the ideal version of Shake makes a lot of sense, you know, a secondary tertiary ball handler, but he, he doesn't, he hasn't been that guy this year. So I was okay with, try, like, trying to play Ferk on Ferk and hit a couple of threes, he wasn't great, but, you know, they, they ran him off the screen. He had a nice three to corner three as well to kind of break up a, a slog of a stretch the second half. So um, I was fine with that move, but 
Yeah, I mean, I mentioned the play earlier where Tyler heard that pull up throw. They had Furkan as you know the the point of attack defender, and like you, you can't that you can't do that right. Like even though Sixers are limited with what they can do at the point of attack, like you got to at least have a Matisse, a Tyrese, a Danny, someone out there that can give you a little more resistance. Like it's just it's unfair to put Furkan in that position, and then on top of the fact that you know Paul Reed was, I, and I it's always tough with some of these defensive things because I don't know, like maybe they were trying to bait Tyler Hero into a drive or something like that, like but. Regardless, like if it's a coaching thing or it's on Paul Reed, they were not in the right position to stop that pull up three. So especially when Furcon is, you know, the guy trying to contest it from the rear or whatever it is. So I was fine playing Furcon, you know, in this one. I got it. You know, he's a guy who's didn't shoot the ball well this year, but you know, still a 36, 37% shooter with, you know, got some size, can shoot off the screens a little bit. Um, you know, so I understood it, you know, but it obviously didn't end up being a huge differentiator, but yeah, you can't really, and you know, and that's happened throughout the year when Furkan's been in the rotation to be using him as an on-ball defender. And it's like, you know, I know he's not great off the ball, but you know, you can't you can't have him guarding a lead ball handler. It just as it's not a good you know yep. allocation of his minutes, and it doesn't help the team. So you know, that's what coaching is about, right? Is putting these guys in proper roles, and that's that sort of thing is not one that that I think you know behooves you know Furkan's minutes. Yep, for sure, and I think that's. I think that's probably been one of my bigger gripes uh, so far with Doc so far this year. And obviously he's done a he's done a solid job getting to where they are, but I do feel like guys haven't been, aren't always put in the position to succeed. Um, and I think for asking Furkan to guard Tyler Hero, again, the game was competitive. And it's, I mean, to stay competitive throughout the duration of the game. But I felt like it was such a letdown to watch Tyler Hero continue to excel and the Heat, I mean, and the Sixers really had no answers. It was really tough to see because it felt like you feel, I feel as if in these first two games, the Sixers had to somehow get the lead. If you're continuously fighting the uphill battle with the depth that they don't have in comparison to the Miami Heat, who are not even bothering, not even bothering to play Duncan Robinson, they could afford to sit Jimmy Butler six minutes into six or seven minutes into the into the fourth quarter feeling no pressure i'm sure kyle lowry is just loving the fact that he can rest his hamstring it it felt like you almost had to get above the break make the heat feel like they needed to get back into the game in order to hold on to a lead trying to take it from the heat take the lead from them there's only going to be a bigger challenge as the game goes on because of the lack of depth that the sixers have right now yeah, I mean, you mentioned that stretch, right? That, you know, the end of the first, I think it was, what was it? Was it 22-22 or even maybe 24-24 all? I mean, so they, they never, I mean, they got it within what, six or seven after that again later? Like they never, never, never made it a one possession game after that to my recollection. I'd have to check specifically, but but yeah, that stretch keyed it, right? They, it was 22-22 at the very, you know, the very worst. And then it was 31-24 at the end of one. And then they got down 13, I think, in the second, you know, battled back, you know, Harden got fouled on a three, cut it to eight. You know, it was, you know, kind of flirting between seven to 12 in the third. And then they kind of made a little bit of a run in the fourth, but then they went cold. And yeah, I mean, that that was that was kind of the stretch that gave the Heat that kind of that little margin of comfort they needed. And the Sixers were able, never able to, you know, battle back. I think, you know, if you're looking at it, and this, you know, obviously doesn't matter, 2 is 2 but if you're looking to kind of ways to be optimistic from the Sixers perspective, I think if you combine like that nice stretch they had in game one, with their overall playing game two, like that is a pretty good performance. Like I said, game one, a lot of their offense just came from the fact that the, the, the Heat decided to full court pressure and the Sixers got a 
bunch of buckets on for that. Game two, it felt like, you know, Maxi found some stuff. They got into the creases, the defense a little bit better. Didn't play well offensively, but um, you know, just it felt a little more like replicable than it did because the game one just felt like it was so much in the hands of Miami. Like you're going to full court press, we'll beat it. And if we can't beat it, then, or we you don't full court press, then we're in trouble. So um, obviously the entire tone of the series changes when or if Joel returns. But I think, you know, you, you do feel a little better about game two's overall play, but the reality still is you're down 2-0 and, you know, that's a very tough place to come back from. And, you know, you're, you're, you're halfway to your season ending. And, you know, it's just, as you mentioned earlier, with the shooting variance being such a big thing, you know, let's just say Joel comes back in game. And then, you know, I don't want to you know, put this on Sixers fans or the Sixers or whatever, but like, let's say Joel comes back, has a huge game, but they, the heat, the heat again, have a big shooting night and you can't combat the right. So it's just like, when you're in these, you have such a small margin of error. That's the, that's a bummer of missing Joel for even two games at, at least. For sure. And that's, you know, that's kind of where I wanted to go uh, with this conversation. Cause I think if I told you that without Joel Embiid, the 76ers lost the first two games in the Eastern Conference semifinals to Miami Heat. You'd be like, okay, yeah, sounds sounds about right. But the problem was, at least in game one, was like at least you wanted to, I think the fan base wanted to feel on board with how they got there. They got we all saw this, we all got the same result that a lot of us anticipated. But I think the decision making with some of the, the, the personnel, the rotations, and obviously the, the controversial decision with DeAndre Jordan has frustrated players, I mean, or fans at least, to the same point that we all, I think, all anticipated we, we were going to get to. However, as you pointed out, Joel Embiid is going to be a big factor if he does come back in game three. And in recent history, 2018 Cavaliers, the, 2000 and who, the 2018 Cavaliers who went on to go to the finals, the 2019 Raptors who won the NBA finals, the 2021 Clippers two times came back from 0-2, and the Bucks, who won the NBA Finals last year, came back down from 0-2. Both series, I believe, uh, they were the road team as well. So, And none of those teams that came back from 0-2 all of a sudden added an MVP, MVP player in Game 3. Like, that's a very big caveat uh, to the situation. And I would say, I would say, the way the things that I saw from the Sixers and things they maybe even learned that they could do against the Heat Add that to Joel Embiid, I think they are. No, matter of fact, I mean, scratch that. If the Sixers have Joel Embiid, they are the better team. Point blank. Period. Agree. I I think it's tough for me because uh, even though Joel is a much bigger loss addition, to everyone frame it, than Kyle Lowry, like Lowry still helps them right, right, a lot, right. Try to say a lot right. Lowry is four or five times fast. Um, but he still helps a lot, right? Especially in the half court with the organization, the offense, just to get things going. And so, and you, you just you don't know, like, you don't know how those, how those things, the ripple effects, right? We know, we know from the Sixers perspective, the ripple effect as well. I I'm just, I, I know to an extent with Miami, but I'm not as in tune with that team as I am with the Sixers. So um I I went into the series saying Sixers and seven, or sorry, Heat and Seven. I think that was even before the Joel news. But I, like I, I haven't been wowed by this Heat team. I, I think it's a totally reasonable stance to say the Sixers are better. But as you know, as I said, like the better team doesn't always win a series, right? Especially when they have to win. You know, they have to win now four out of five out of five games. That's that's hard to do over any team. You could take you could take the Pistons, the Magic, the Rockets, and and you tell them they're they're they they got to win one game out of five. Like that's hard to do for anyone. So that's the issue is with you know with not having Joel. So. I think based off what I've seen in the playoffs this year, 
I, I probably lean the Sixers a better team, but again, that doesn't mean that they, they win. And, you know, the six, the heat are also going to get in addition back at some point, I think by Friday, Lowry's hamstring injury will be what, two, two and a half weeks removed. He missed the last two and a half games. And I, I know that Chris Haynes reported during game one that like he's fairly close to coming back. And so, um, you know, I'd imagine the heater may be trying to steal a little bit more time for him, given Joel wasn't going to play in other games in Miami. So, um, the short answer is I don't know if I necessarily, I would probably agree that they're a better team, but I don't, it's tough for me to mean that it means they're going to win the series, just given how much can happen. The fact that Miami's also playing at less than full strength, that starting point guard. So it's tough to judge them aptly, you know, as we've seen so far, but I think, you know, on, I did kind of prefer them, the Sixers heading in the playoffs, but we shall see in the next uh, at least two more games. <laughs> yep. We know that, for yep. that, but for now at least two more games. Yep, yep. Uh, you ha- you'd have to imagine that game three is going to be a, a battle. I mean, all, every game is going to be a battle, right? But I think there's a certain, I think there's a certain way you could play in game three if you're the 76ers that does a lot for the team psyche. Um, so I'll put it, so I've haven't like learned from Danny's experiences. If he sees Joel Embiid go out there and perform like the MVP and, and just play at another level that Bam Adebayo can't and that, in, that, that lends to the offense and defense being going to another level for the team. There is not just like a material impact, right? There's not just the, oh, now my looks are cleaner if I'm Danny Green or uh, if I'm James Harden when I go to the hoop now I have a, 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 an ultimate release valve if I want to do a drop pass or if, I, if he picks and pops. There's obviously the, the impact in what we see. But I've known, I think you probably know enough now too. There is an impact mentally when you see, oh, we got our guy back now. Like I can afford to miss a shot. I can afford to have a turnover because we got the guy. And maybe game one and two, there might have been a moment where if I'm a role player on the Sixers or if I'm even Tobias Harris and I'm saying, and, I, and I'm hoping James Harden is that guy, I'm, I'm, maybe he could step back in the time machine real quick. And, and it probably was real evident to them and probably evident to James Harden that he's not that guy, and which is totally fine. Again, he can't be Houston Harden for the entirety of his career. So you know, maybe there was that, that element of, damn, we don't, we don't got, we don't got that type of guy right now, but there is a mental impact to knowing you have the MVP that I think would just add an element of calm and confidence at the same time for the Sixers uh, that maybe won't be telling in the box scores, but will be telling in the bravado in which they operate. And I think if the Heat see that, if the Heat see that the Sixers are like, oh, their confidence levels at another level. O2 didn't shake them at all. I think the Heat could be in for a world of surprise. Granted, they'll still play hard, but Joel is just another monster and his trickle-down impact. I mean, I'm a little bit rambling here, but you saw what happened in game five when they played against the Raptors and game four. When Joel came out there and every time he's shooting the ball, he's clutching his, his thumb and every time, like, and his mood, his he wasn't happy. He wasn't, he wasn't feeling himself. And we saw how that trickled down to the team. I think he has an immense impact, not just on the material performance of the team, but the psyche of the team as well. And that will be a welcome addition. Again, if 
if, 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 and hopefully he can make it back for game three. Yeah. And I think even getting into the on-court part of it, you know, you look at game six and it wasn't, it wasn't Joel that came out at the start of game six and dominated, right? It was James. He was absolutely awesome that first quarter. And then, you know, he took a backseat once Joel dominated the second half. Right. And I think with James, he just, and you've seen it throughout these two games, like he just, he doesn't have the the game currently to withstand that superstar play for an entire, like you saw a couple of great second quarters and I think he's still been solid overall. I think he's probably getting a little, like, if you want to talk about anything, I think defense with him is like off the ball has been the bigger issue than anything else. Like he's been okay. Like the offense has still been pretty solid, but he just can't be that guy for 44 straight minutes. So when you come out with a great start in game six and he knows that like, Hey, like Joel, you know, if I, if I get us to get us to this point, I can kind of shift back into a secondary role and Joel is going to take us home when I can kind of fill the gaps where necessary. He's like, when Joel's not there, he just, he, he can only do so much. And he doesn't say he's not, he's not trying, like he's not trying to get back seat in these games, but like, he just can't be that guy every play. And I think the same thing is like when, when the ball swings Danny's way or George's way, you know, out of a Joel and post up, they know that like you're going to be able to create an advantage consistently with that action. Whereas, you know, right now it's a little bit like this, like this ball has to go in. Like, like I know we're not going to like going to get a clean look from the three from the corner of the wing every possession right now because we only have you know we, we don't have our, our big man who you know kind of collapses the entire defense. So and then just defensively the things they can do the way that Joel can play up and take away Jimmy's mid range game and his driving game and give Tobias more margin for because Tobias thing has been solid defensively but like you can see how it's hard for him to navigate screens and it is for him to play isolation defense and so you know when you can have Joel play a little higher up and you can have. And maybe you can trap with, with Joel against, you know, Tyler Hero, just play higher up to the level and take away his pull-up threes. Like, that's the big thing, too. And if they're going to get stops, then you then you get Tyrese again because the Heat have not been able to stop Tyrese in transition in this series, right? Like, he found some success, you know, in the second half and the half court, but in the in the first six and a half quarters of this, this series, it was largely the, the transition game that was really fueling his scoring. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's definitely some sort of you know mental side that I'm sure you and, and Daniel way better Danny than you know, kind of passed to, t- to tell you about. But I think on the court, you just it, you can still see the reflection of it, whether it's you know just easier looks in the offense and then pushing transition. So yeah, I think you know the, the caveat, of course, is that you know Joel has to be that guy, and it's asking a lot of him you know to still be playing through a torn limited thumb. Thumb, you know, I think Chris Haynes reported that. He just on Tuesday was able to look at his phone, you know, after the concussion because the light was too sensitive. He was too sensitive to light. He's dealing with an orbital fracture, so um, it, it's a lot to put on Joel. And I think you know you, you don't want you don't want it's like it's unfair to him. Like I mean, that's just the guy battling through this. But I think Joel is clearly someone who's who kind of enjoys having this sort of burden to an extent. So um, you know, I, I think it's important to temper expectations. But you know, he's one of the five or six you know, conservatively best players in the NBA, and so there are a lot worse guys to have coming back at a compromised level, if compromised at all. I mean, we saw what he could do in game six, you know, with, with the, you know, the, the thumb injury. So um, we'll see, but I totally agree that, yeah, there's, there's the mental aspect that comes from the on-court results or vice versa, you know? So I think, you know, the six would play better, but you know, it's not necessarily guaranteed that that results in a win. And if it doesn't, the Sixers a very tough spot, but that's why they play the games, of course. For sure. And in, I think Danny has alluded to it, uh, on the show throughout the course of the year, the Ben Simmons thing kind of Joel embraced that. And he said, all right, well, Ben's not playing. Sure. I'll just do more for the team. And so I think in a moment like this, I think he's probably, probably 
relishing it. Obviously, he probably wishes he just wasn't in this circumstance, but it seems as if every challenge that has been presented to Joel Embiid so far, he's pretty much answered it or tried to uh, aggressively attack answering it in a positive manner. So interested to see how that plays out. And with that being said, let's be uh, on the optimistic side of things. Let's say Joel Embiid does play game three. Miami Heat uh, have obviously Bam Adebayo, somebody who's capped, caped for his defensive player of the year honors. And obviously so, he's a great defender, especially on switches on the perimeter. But Joel Embiid is obviously a different monster. If you were Eric Spolstra, how would you guard the Sixers with Joel Embiid in the lineup? And what did you see this year as you were getting ready to preview the series where uh, Sixers fans can kind of key their eyes on for how things might be in game three? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? I mean, you saw you saw Joel play the Heat three times with three different contexts, right? And that, and that first one that he won, the Heat played a lot of zone and Joel struggled. In the second one, Bam was out and Joel dominated and you got to play against Omar Irtzman. No, no, no disrespect to Omar Irtzman. He's you know, it filled naturally, but he's just not capable of defending Joel. And then in game three, you know, James Harden sat out and, you know, he, Joel had a tough night and I think it might've been a back-to-back as well, if I recall, um, you know, in early March. So, um, I, I mean, I think you'll, I think you'll see kind of a similar strategy in a different spot on the floor, but what they're doing with Harden, where they're, they're going to have that primary guy on them, bam, most likely, and then shade help with a Jimmy or a PJ Tucker or a Caleb Martin, you know, a Victor Oladipo, a bunch of guys who are pretty, you know, mobile and rangy and have good hands and they're going to dig at things and, you know, try and kind of make Joel's dribbles from the mid post, the free throw line extended tough on him. Um, but I think, where the Sixers have missed Joel a lot is like Bam is really overwhelming guys on the perimeter a ton. But if you have to force the Miami to like reconsider that a little bit, because of if you're able to get Joel the ball on switches, where you know, let's just say they run a they run a Joel and B or James Harden Joel and B pick and roll, and Miami switches that now. PJ Tucker's on on Joel. PJ Tucker is an incredible defender who's vastly outplays his his size in terms of his strength capacity, but like Joel can shoot over the top. He can get deep enough position. Like, of course, Bam is really good at clogging passing windows. Bam plays with such incredibly active hands on the switches, but Harden is a great passer. So that's another thing too, is like, that's the issue with a Paul Reed, DeAndre Jordan, Paul Mills. That was when Miami switches those ball screens that like it just neutralizes the roller because there's like, they're not going to, you're not going to post up any of those guys, right? Understandably so. Um, so that's the biggest thing that I think benefits the Sixers. But um, yeah, I think you're going to see, you know, timely help. You're going to see a lot of similar stuff to what you saw with Toronto, honestly. Um, but, you know, the, the difference is the primary guy on, you know, Joel in this case will be a, you know, a guy who's arguably, you know, one of the best defenders in the NBA and is you know, going to become with help from PJ Tucker, Jimmy Butler, Caleb Martin, Victor Lodipo, Max, you know, Max Truce even is pretty solid defense as we've seen. Even Tyler Hero thinks some good stuff off the ball in the series. So um, it's going to be a really tough challenge, but you know, that's you know, the six are going to need Joel to be, you know, MVP guy to, to get out of the series. And like I said, it's a little unfair to him, but that's kind of the reality of things. And, you know, there are, again, there are worse guys to rely on to be that, that caliber. So yeah. that's kind For of what sure. I expect to see. For sure. And I think when I, at some point, when I do talk to Danny, I think I will, and, he, and what his sentiment will be to the opportunity is still grand. They are in the playoffs. They have two home games and they all, they all have, ex- he's obviously had experience being down 0-2 with the Raptors. Um, and they have the best, they they feel they had the best player in the series. Um, again, the margin is razor thin. It would have been nice to get one. I would have felt real good about their chances going forward. 
but you can't win them all, especially against the Miami Heat, who are not going to let up one bit at all. Uh, before we get out of here, there's two more, two other things that I, I, I thought were noticeable. One, um, I thought Tobias has a level, it seems as if Tobias has a level of confidence uh, in this, in these first two games. That is very nice to see. I thought game series, the first series, he was very good as well, but even more so against Jimmy. I think he's been, his mannerisms out there or the way he's carried himself, particularly offensively, I think is a very positive sign. And then number two, and this may be a bigger change that we saw from game one to game two, we saw a lot more of James being willing or conceding the, the person bringing up the ball to be Tyrese Maxey. And Tyrese Maxey kind of flourished today, especially in that second half, scoring the ball, finding uh, lanes where he can drive. I think that development can only help them, can only and only help the Sixers going forward, where Tobias and Tyrese are feeling more empowered uh, as scorers, as player finishers or initiators, whoever that might be. I think that's a positive spin for game three. I, I, again, the, the offense is just a totally another level with Joel Embiid. And then you have the guys feeling confident about their individual selves. I think it's a very good thing for the Sixers. Just got to make it happen in a yeah. four games out of five. Yeah. And I think, I think the other thing that is important with you know, Joel brings is where the Sixers have had a lot of success offensively in this series is when they've gone small with a Tobias or a George at the five because they can go four out around him, whether it's a Tyrese or a, you know, a James, even a Tobias attacking from the perimeter. They can't do that with a Paul Reed or John Jordan. They can do that with, like, you're not going to have Joel be a, you're not going to treat him like a stretch five, of course, but you can have Joel play space the wing a little bit. And maybe, and you saw what happened, like if you drive, like I think Harden had a nice drive at one point where Bam was in the strong side corner and he couldn't help off of Tobias or I think it was Tobias and James got a bucket, like and he was finishing over Jimmy. So um, that's the sort of thing you can do periodically is you want to go a little spread pick and roll with it with to get Tyrese downhill and you have you have Joel Joel space in the wing like you can't bring Bam in there because you can't ignore the NBA's you know scoring champ so that's another thing as well but yeah Tobias started slowly but his last six shots he had that up and under on Jimmy that like I was like you know he's had a few moves in this in these playoffs yeah. like I have not seen you do that sort of thing with kind of the footwork and the handle very often and so yeah I think he clearly feels comfortable in this series and he looks like a guy that the Sixers can rely on as the release valve. They've had to rely on him a lot as kind of the creator at times, but now with, you know, when I think, I think I, I, I don't know, this is not sort of, but I feel like we're going to see Joel for at least one game in the series. So it could be three or four. Doesn't matter. Obviously it's, it's tougher if it's game four and they lose again, but I think whenever Joel comes out Joel comes back, I'll just say that, you know, as is not sourced, of course, but you're going to see that Tobias being the release valve like he was in Toronto really shine because he feels comfortable attacking a Tyler Hero, a Jimmy Butler, a Max Cruz, the last of two who are good defenders. Like obviously Jimmy is a very accomplished defender, but like Struz had done some good things against a Harden, a Max. Like he's he moves well to size. He's positionally sound. Like and Tobias just kind of give him the business. I mean at times Tobias had a really tough jumper over PJ Tucker to open the game in game two. So yeah, he's clearly playing with a level of physicality and confidence that we haven't seen a ton of. And I think when he gets back to being more of that release foul and just guy who takes some threes because I think he's been a little bit hesitant from three, understandably so, because he's he has a bigger role as an on-ball creator. But, um, yeah, I think Tobias is in a really good spot when, when if Joel comes back. And uh, I agree that, you know, you saw Max, you figure some stuff out. And they've you know, I've mentioned that Tyler Hero has been solid off the ball, but they've had their way with him on the ball, whether it's a Harden, a Tobias, a Maxi, um, just kind of getting to their spots against him. Obviously, we know what Maxi did in that, that win you know, back in March over against Tyler Hero kind of stimulated him out a lot. So um, I think there's a lot you can do 
when when everyone in the lineup is either a scoring or shooting threat right now they're you're playing one guy at all times at a bare minimum who isn't that whether it's a Paul Reed or Jordan or Matisse Thibel but you get you get a Danny out there who's you know a very at least a spot up shooter then you have a, a Max you can do his thing Harden Tobias Joel that's a really tough lineup to stop 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 offensively especially with how Miami switches things so um I think yeah the, what what you saw from Tobias and Tyrese in game two specifically, you know, Tobias in both games should have you feeling confident this offense can kind of score comfortably against Miami, but it's a matter of, you know, what Joel looks like and what they can do defensively with Joel and how, how capable he is. But yeah, I think, you know, if he plays and he's very good, like, I don't, I don't think I would totally understand if Sixers fan, like, let's just say, hey, Joel, it comes out tomorrow or Friday morning that Joel is available. Like if Sixers fans want to feel like they're going to win these two games at home, understandably so, because I don't think these games are shown that, Miami with Kyle Lowry back and Joel with, you know, or in the Philly with Joel back, it's a totally like, you know, impossible task. So it's cliche to say, take it one game at a time, but you get Joel back, you win one, and then you win, you win the next one. Then all of a sudden it's a best of three series and you got the best player in the series and you, you there are worse places to be. So um, kind of rambling there a little bit, but yeah, no, Joel fixes, fixes a lot of things. If he's able to come back and play very well, which I, I think you should hope that he does. Yeah. I think, I think we're both like, thinking like maybe most Sixers fans do you you're upset that you're down 0-2 but then you start to actually look at how you got there what you have coming up and you're like well ain't too bad again still got to win game three we'll see how that plays out uh we're going to get you out of here in a second uh but before we do that uh oh let me a little programming note for those who are listening um game will not do a post game show on game three I will actually leave some commentary or have my thoughts on uh, ESPN Radio game night uh, right after Warriors-Grizzlies. That's Saturday, so I'll save my Sixers' thoughts, hopefully after they win game three, going into game four. Catch me there Saturday. Um, And then, speaking of Warriors-Grizzlies, there are a multitude of things that we think about when it comes to the NBA playoffs. There's Giannis, how do you guard him? How do you stop him? There's the combo of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown with Boston. Uh, you obviously have Job ja Morant, who is thriving without having to be, gu- be guarded by Anthony Edwards and Pat- Patrick Beverly, and now apparently Gary, pa- Gary Payton II. Um, and then there's obviously Devin Booker and Chris Paul and Luca, who's a monster. But the biggest theoretical monster in the NBA playoffs, the biggest theory is a death lineup. And then Jackson (laughs) tweeted out a stat today. I was like, what? All the hype that the death lineup has been getting apparently now seems false. Jackson, can you hit him with it, please? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I I tweeted out that since games one and two um, of the Denver series, the last four games, two against Denver, two against Memphis, the Warriors are minus 17 and 39 minutes with Steph, Clay, Poole, Wiggins, and Draymond. I don't think they've been shooting well, but you know, I've watched all those games and I was, I was like, I've watched these minutes and a lot of them I'm thinking like, and I'm looking at who's on the floor and I'm like, these minutes aren't going that well for the Warriors. And it's, it's got their presumptive, you know, five, you know, best players out there. And so, uh, yeah, they, they're struggling a little bit. Like they, they can't really score inside the arc a ton. They don't have, you know, they don't really pay, like Draymond's great making passes on the roll, but he's not like the defense is comfortable with him taking floaters or finishing at the rim. Um, they don't have like they don't really have much size on the wings at the point of attack. I mean, you saw you saw Jaw hunt out everyone, like I mean, everyone in th- that, that last six minutes. I mean, it was mostly Poole and a little bit Clay and Wiggins and one Steph, I think, but um, they don't have the point of attack defense, no size really. 
Um, it's just like, it's, I mean, it was, it was really cool through those, those two first games when they were, you know, no disrespect, but they're probably playing the worst perimeter defensive personnel in the playoffs. Like, I mean, those guys are putting, being put in roles, you know, in Denver that aren't ideal for them with guys being injured, but, um, and they're in the Denver and Golden State was shooting ridiculously well from, from three to open, you know, with that lineup. So, um, yeah, I think that, that lineup is something that it kind of feels like they've treated as the like Golden State's treated as kind of like the, the go-to, but it feels like something should be more, a little, a little more selective with. So, of course, you know, they're still only at, I think they're still a net, like I looked at their net, the word net rating, they're still like plus five overall with, with that lineup. And it's still a small, I don't know, probably 55 minute sample at most. So you don't want to take too many, too many things away, but there, I think there are clear holes with that lineup. So um, I know some Warriors fans that I, you know, I, I talked to are hoping that we'll see like one of Dre, Draymond and Looney play together, you know, taking out a, a, a Wiggins or a, or a, a clay or a pool, uh, probably not clay, but um yeah so that lineup is you know it keeps getting all this praise and i understand it but like i've been watching these games and i'm like we I, I, these these minutes aren't going well like everyone's like oh the death lineup and it's like the, the the warriors are losing these minutes i think we should pump the brakes a little bit i understand the appeal of it but it's a little it's a little reliant on hot shooting they're worse people to rely on than jordan Poole, steph curry and clay thompson to make threes but um clearly not as much versatility as we expected and I'm sure we'll we'll get more of it moving forward. But we saw, I mean, defensively, we saw the clear limitations in the end of that game when Jaw was just, it was, it was, I mean, it was simple offense. It was just, we're I'm going to get a perimeter guy to screen for us, and I'm going to pick on Clay Thompson, Jordan Poole, Steph Curry, Andrew Wiggins, and Draymond can only do so much. And I think Draymond clearly limited, you know, after that, you know, getting elbowed in the eye. So um, we'll see moving forward. But yeah, definitely should relax a little bit on you know the second. I mean, I used definitely up in my tweet, but. You know, it's it's much different when you and someone replied, but some it's much different when you swap, you know, you know, Iguodala and, and Prime KD for Andrew Wiggins and Jordan Poole, who are good players in their own right. But you know, it's it's a little different there. Yeah, so yeah, sure. definitely some some reasons for concern, at least with some of the lineups that the Warriors have thrown, especially that one that everyone seems raving about, but hasn't warranted as much praise as it's you know cleaned or not cleaned, uh, received, garnered. For sure, and there's there's a reason why back in their heyday. The death lineup didn't start. It just came in at times. Um, it's very hard to maintain. But I will say about that series, John ja Morant, and I, I'm not sure what's good with Desmond Bain. I hope he's a hundred. He doesn't seem to be a hundred percent. Hope he can get there. Uh, but between him, between Morant, Bain, obviously we don't know what's going to happen with Dylan Brooks. I don't think the, any further punishment has come out as of yet. Uh, I think Jaron Jackson and Brandon Clark have been very solid so far. You still got Tillman. Uh, and then Zaire Williams came off the bench and gave him some good minutes. They got some depth over there in Memphis. They are not going to make, they are definitely inexperienced, but they are not going to make this easy. And I, without Gary Pay- Payton the second, it could be John Morant season in this series. And he is absolutely 100% embracing the moment. It would seem uh, fun series in that one. Hopefully the fun, it will be a fun series for the Philadelphia 76ers as they go to Wells Fargo center on Friday, a reminder, no post-game show on Friday. I'll be on ESPN Radio on Saturday. I'll talk about the Sixers then, and I'll also talk about those Grizzlies and that Warriors in Game 3. And if you haven't followed Jackson Frank by the time of the end of this episode, I'll give you one more chance. Jackson Frank, contributor for Liberty Bowl, is on Twitter at JackFrank underscore JFF. Go ahead and get you this free game. He's not charging for his Twitter just yet. Go ahead and take advantage. Jackson, thank you for your time. Yeah, appreciate having me on. I was happy to talk some basketball.
If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please leave a five-star rating and give a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. Inside the Green Room is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. Clifford Augustin is the producer and Marissa Rivez is the acting director for sports podcasts at SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. SiriusXM Podcasts. <laughs>